afternoon. Welcome to Todd's Time Travel here on Summer Valley FM. I'm at Glastonbury Abbey. Um, I've managed to slide my way into all the different religious sites in Somerset. I'm here with Luke, the uh, Learning Engagement Manager. Luke, thanks for joining me today. No worries, Todd. Yeah, so um, we've had a little walk around large one. <laughs> uh, um, some listeners may know I have visited Mulchney, which is the second largest abbey, but we're now stood in what is the largest abbey in, within the UK. Is that right, Luke? Um, sort of, yeah. At least it, it's it's the second most influential outside of Westminster Abbey in terms of sizes. Um, certainly, it had one of the largest churches in medieval England, um, and it would have boasted even today the longest church in England if it was still standing in England. Yeah, yeah. Well, can you give me sort of like a general history, just so listeners can catch up with what we have discussed outside of this show yeah, sure. like a like a general background so when we think yeah. the abbey was set up because i know you haven't got any confirmed dates yeah. which is hard to do yeah, very so, hard. yeah. yeah. Absolutely. But, but just a, a general overview of your, yeah. of your opinion of your view. sure absolutely so so glastonbury abbey as we know in terms of the buildings on site here as a monastery or abbey starts at some point in the seventh century we know there's a small church on site at that point there is archaeology on site that points to there being something slightly earlier Possibly in the 6th century, there's some post-Roman buildings kind of where our cloister sits today, which may point to there being structures on site at that point. Um, but that's kind of our earliest time frame we're looking at. There are myths and legends and stories that point to there being something here before that date. There's the famous story concerning Joseph of Arimathea, a biblical figure who, according to legend, is meant to have come to Glastonbury and potentially founded the first church um, in Christendom upon the site of the Abbey here in the first century AD. Wow. But aside from that, we're really not too sure. Um, certainly something here by the seventh century. Yeah, um, so uh, surrounding Glastonbury, we, we've got a fairly amount of Re- Roman entries and Roman yeah. buildings, and I know Glastonbury's yeah. had this impact of that as well. Yeah, um, now, I know, um, I, I suppose the hardest thing for Glastonbury to find was, was the Saxon remains, which is what we were yeah, talking about. The ladies' chapel that we've got, um, well, that you have uh, on site, you, we, as you think, there was some sort of Saxon remain there before yeah. the, before that yeah, chapel was, was built. Yeah, so, so the lady chapel is, you know, our currently oldest part of the Abbey Church standing, dating to about 1186, its completion. But of course, we think it was um, built on the site of a much earlier church. In fact, we know the foundations of the church were there. Um, the Saxon church, you know, kind of um, was built on what is now the site of the medieval church. There are foundations surviving, and it kind of had three phases running through the Saxon period. So a smaller church at the beginning, then it was expanded upon in kind of the 9th century, and eventually in the 10th century became a particularly large church, um, being greatly expanded by Abbot Dunstan, or St. Dunstan, as you might know him today, one of our more, more famous abbots. Yes. Um, <laughs> and I, I mentioned the idea of this um, potentially legendary early church, it's believed that the Lady Chapel, the oldest part we've got left today, was actually built on the site of a church called the Vetusta Ecclesia, which in Latin is the ancient church. And that's believed to have been the site of the earliest church at Glastonbury, whether that's the, the legendary church built by Joseph Arimathea or a later wooden church built oh. at the end of the Romano-British period or during that wow. time, we really don't know. But certainly popular legend says that that's the site of the early church. 
and it's still actually the site of the earliest yes, church we have yeah, left, yeah. which is quite nice anyway. <laughs> but it, it's nice that you actually have the foundation, you know where the foundations yeah. are, rather than have to go, we think it's here, we, yeah. you can actually go, yeah. it's here. Yeah, absolutely. Because yeah. as we all know, the Saxon remains probably one of the hardest ones to find. Yeah. Nowadays, especially because of the Norman conquest in 1066, it kind of like made it very difficult yeah, to go, absolutely. where is everything? <laughs> but, yeah. um, so when, when people come to Castle Abbey, it's, it's, it's very different to Mulchney in, in the terms of, where, where Mulchney is and everything is, is laid out flat and you've only got the foundations. Here you've actually got buildings that are significantly all in one piece, but yeah. in a, a good amount of remains. You've got so large you've got, bits of room. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But you can see what they are. You don't yeah. have to go, mm, I don't really know what, I'm not sure that is. You can go, right, I can clearly see this corner, I can see that isn't made. And there's some amazing scissor arches as well, yeah, which yeah, absolutely, I've yeah. discussed in other religious buildings, but you can see some of the old, old scissor yeah, arches in, in the chapel yeah. as well, which is really lucky to have some yeah. standing, especially. Yeah. Again, um, I know we discussed that um, on ground level, um, it's obviously a lot easier to find, but obviously then that does mean it's more likely to be harmed uh, as if it was preserved underground, mm, uh, like yeah. things like the Roman, for example. Yeah. Um, so I suppose you must feel pretty lucky to have these things that yeah, are still standing. We're, we're incredibly lucky to have yeah, what we do have standing, and we're very lucky. Um, it, it's remarkable a lot of it survived. You know, The Abbey's gone through quite an extended period of kind of almost... 500 years of weather damage, erosion, human action to kind of slowly chip away at the ruins and to have some of it left is rather remarkable. Especially having a couple of bits like our St. Patrick's Chapel and Abbott's Kitchen that are still surviving with their roofs on is, is rather, rather amazing. Good afternoon, welcome back to Todd's Time Travel here on Summer Valley FM. Still here with Todd and Luke at Glastonbury Abbey. So Luke, we're going to talk about the um, Abbott's Kitchen. So um, the Abbot being one of the most powerful figures within the Abbey, does actually have his own kitchen. He does. Now, yeah. people are kind of like thinking, where am I, you know, it's a kitchen, why are we talking about a kitchen? Well, Luke has informed me that this particular style of building is one of the only ones in the world other than one in southern France. Yeah. And me or Luke are not going to try and I'll fetch our back. But no, the, the design, when I walked in, the design of it, it's, it's, it's like an ocular, like an ocular roof sort of yeah. style, though, is it? And you've yeah. got like four corners as well, yeah. uh, or the um, the four fires as we discussed. So yeah. technically, <laughs> I put like invisible quotation marks. Technically, three fires. Yeah. But Luke's got a brilliant explanation to how this worked and what it was actually used for. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, so as you said, the Abbot's Kitchen is really a unique building, um, really one of one of two two in the world. Um, it was part of very quickly. I'll kind of put it into context. It's part of the Abbot's apartment. So the abbot, being the head monk of the monastery, has his own area of the monastery where he can wine and dine guests, conduct business, and kind of all, all those matters he needs to attend to. And the kitchen's part of that complex. So um, it's designed primarily to cater for his guests, and so needs a lot of cooking space. You know, we're catering for royal visits, visits from wealthy and, in, 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 and important noblemen. So it needs to have a high capacity for catering. So it has four fires within the building, one in each corner. Each fire has its own distinct and separate use. It's got one for boiling, we, we know, meats, <laughs> vegetables, making soups, ragouts, pie fillings, all of that. It's got a spit for cooking meat in. It's got an oven, which is kind of third fire. And the pies. ovens, <laughs> yes, the ovens for cooking pies, pastries, cakes, sweets, and desserts. That's not my baking, section. That's your, yeah, your section, yeah. That's my not, not, not caking, not, not caking, not cooking bread. Bread's baked at bakeries on site. Yeah. 
And the fourth fireplace isn't really a fire. It's kind of made to look like a fireplace for symmetry of the building. <laughs> That's the scullery fire, as we call it, or scullery corner, where they'd wash up, clean, there's yeah, a drain it's the in the kitchen floor. Port the <laughs> kitchen porter part, where, the, where they clean, clean up any mess they made. So it's got that nice layout with kind of four fires, one in each corner. The central area for food preparation and work. Yeah, of course. Now, it's got that beautiful kind of octagonal domed roof not, yeah. you mentioned. And that, that's something that really sets it apart as that unique building. Yeah. Um, traditionally, a medieval kitchen would have a fire, fires in the middle of the building, all exiting through a central chimney. Of course, in this building, we've got fires in each corner with their own chimneys. That means that central roof isn't for extracting smoke, but what it is for is for kind of ventilating the building. We call it our 700-year-old air conditioning. Yeah. The kitchen is <laughs> built at the, you know, in the early 1300s. And to have this in this building is rather remarkable. It's got windows in the top of the roof in a structure called the lantern, and through kind of a system of air convection current with hot air rising and cold air sinking, it's all about ventilating the building, keeping it cool in the middle of summer, keeping it full of that kind of um, heavy mix of kind of greasy smoke and steam. Yeah. And especially considering the doors that, if you visit the Abbey today, you'll see now open out into the open world, originally would have opened into more rooms. So it'd be very hard to cool that Yeah, it would have been more open heat upon heat upon heat. It would have been, yeah. So it's all about keeping that cool. Um, that building cool and free of, free of steam and smoke. Um, now, being the kitchen, of course, it doesn't exist in isolation. There's a number of, would have originally been a number of kitchen ancillary buildings around it, such as the buttery, where the wine and spirits were stored. So, the buttery, of course, the buttery would have been right next to the Great Hall, where guests of the Abbey would have been wined and dined, a large building for entertainment and business in the abbey and the great hall would have butted up against the abbot's house a comfortable medieval manor where the abbot would have lived lived um, in splendor reflecting his status as you know head of one of the most influential abbeys in of England. Course, yeah. um, the house actually was split into two parts the abbot's wing where he had his private apartments and then the guest's wing and the guest wing would where the most influential guest of the abbot would stay like kings kings such yeah. as king henry the seventh we know came and stayed at the abbey in 1497 stayed for a while was very costly on the abbey having his visit because of course yeah, under the, discussed. yeah under the clause <laughs> of hospitality the abbey would have had to kind of pay for that visit and then the king would have brought several hundred visitors with him to imagine the expense it kind of made like kelly the eighth's banquet look like like a small absolutely so yeah so you can think about all that medieval kind of pageantry whining and dining and feasting yeah. and parties and that's kind of what the abbot's apartments were that's the showpiece of the abbey the kind of away from the more um otherworldly nature of a monastery kind of um that's the more worldly business side of, of course yeah i mean and the, the extension of the thing is the extension of the abbey as well because there, there are a lot of things that we obviously where the foundations no longer are but when yeah. you could see them because it's a very very good what you think looks like the what you think the abbey would have looked like rather um, model as yeah. you come into the front entrance, which yeah. is a very impressive design because yeah. it gives you a very good outline to go, right, this is what we think, yeah. and how it outlines, and it shows you how large the yeah. site was. Absolutely. And um, even though there wasn't, there wasn't that, how many monks did you say it was on the site? At, most, roughly, at, at most, roughly, it, it greatly goes up and down and fluctuates. Right? Course, so you're yeah. looking normally about 50 is an average number, up to kind of 70, maybe a few more at yeah. times, but really which, no which more. Is a, which is a small number if you think. But, with the abbey, but then the amount yeah. of staff you needed for yeah. everything else, yeah, then it adds it up. Yeah. I mean, yeah, because I mean, you've got to remember that, that aside from the monks being here, this was also one of England's premier pilgrimage sites. So it's got a large influx, at least by medieval standards, of visitors on a daily basis yeah. on their pilgrimages or travelling or merchants. 
And so they had a large supporting staff of you know, workers, stewards, cleaners, cooks, people doing laundry, all this kind of, it was really a bustling hive of activity. You're probably looking at a good couple of hundred people on yeah, site in a exactly. day, all going about their daily business, doing various tasks. Exactly. Jobs. I mean, you even had, um, you say, like, like on the entrance side, yeah. I think it was on the, was it the north side, you had like market stalls. And yeah, you would have the outer in. court, and that would have been kind of, kind of the, the, yeah, it would have had markets, it would have had people selling um, you know, trinkets or um, the ideal location, though, isn't yeah. It? yeah, they had you know market stalls selling you know costermongers selling pies and cakes <laughs> to people and all this kind of thing. So it really would have had, at the outer court, the abbey would have been quite a bustling hive of activity. They really would have done well on the pie farm. They'd be like, "Where's all my pies from?" It's me in the background. Is it? No, I don't know. I'm the leader. Wonder what's me. But like uh, again, again like, wealth-wise, it must have been surely one of the most influential abbeys when it comes to, yeah, to wealth yeah, and power yeah. as well. Yeah. Because it was so large. Yeah, well, large I think I mentioned at the beginning, we're, we're looking at, it's the second monastery in England other than Westminster Abbey. Um, you know, at the time of the dissolution, it is listed as the second wealthiest abbey in England. So it was incredibly powerful um, due to the wealth, but also due to um, its power and influence. You know, that this monastery here owns well, about 56,000 acres of land, or it did, in Somerset alone, not to mention the other counties surrounding. No, of course, yeah. It was a huge landowner. And, of course, many influential landowners were also incredibly powerful um, and owed various um, tributes to the king in terms of, you know, support during wars, financial assistance, things like this. So the Abbey was a big player politically as well as financially in the medieval yeah, world. And, yeah, and then religiously as well. But it, yeah. it sort of shows you that how closely the, the monarch and the religion formed together to, to create um, the United Kingdom in, in Yeah, a big strong power base in, in the country, yeah, certainly. Good afternoon, welcome back to Todd's Time Travel here on Summer Valley FM. It's still like Glastonbury Abbey with Todd and Luke. Now, um, we're going to talk about probably the so the, bi- the biggest event to Glastonbury yeah. <laughs> Abbey. The closing event. The closing event to Glastonbury Abbey, which is the dissolution of yeah. the Abbey. Now, um, we, we all know that the dissolution during the Henry VIII's reign um, was the closures of different monasteries around the UK. Yeah had different effects in different places depending yeah. on, you know, political beliefs beliefs of different individuals. Yeah. Here I suppose it had the biggest effects yeah. because the um the abbot did not exactly agree with uh, the terms and conditions of no, what was going on. It's kinda like signing up to an iron cheese contract, which you never know what you're going to uh other music stores are available. But this is why that the Abbey is no longer in, yeah. I suppose, a good status as it should have been. Yeah. Because if it, if it had been, it would have been very much like Laycock, how it still yeah. has a lot of it remaining, but unfortunately Glastonbury doesn't. Um, and, you know, a lot of people, too much to talk about in one interview, but there's yeah. a lot that goes on during the dissolution yeah, of the older monasteries. Yeah. It's not just to do with the divorce and, and yeah. the marriages. A lot of it was money involved, as we very know. So, um, yeah. And because by closing up the monasteries, Henry VIII then took on the power of becoming basically becoming the head of the religion yeah. and taking on all the money. By closing the monastery, yeah. she made a lot of money. Yeah, yeah. So Glastonbury being one of the most powerful abbeys in the UK would have had an extortionate amount of money involved yeah. as well. And Very the abbey, so. abbey, as Luke will now tell was tried with treason for hiding yeah. said money. <laughs> I say in quotation marks. Yeah. Um, and this was during the year of 1539 as well. Yeah. So after this point, this is kind of where Glastonbury Abbey has its Major downfall, unfortunately. Yeah. Yes, yeah, so the dissolution, fifteen thirty-nine. Um, as you mentioned, you know, it, the dissolution is something that involves so many factors, aside from the, uh, you know, divorce of Catherine of Aragon and the marriage of Anne Boleyn and Henry the Eighteenth to take control of the church away from the Pope to be able to do mm. that. Um, as you said, it's it's mostly about land, politics, money, and power. As everything is, churches are very wealthy. You know, the kings in financial ruin at the time. 
Um, As he, he's coerced <laughs> by um, you know advisors at court who are rising in power, people like um, Thomas Cromwell, who are who are looking to close the monasteries and also change the state of religion in England, being more kind of Protestant-leaning individuals and wanting to take the church away from Rome anyway. So whatever the reasons, the dissolution happened. And at Glastonbury, it's a bit of an unusual one because the last abbot, Abbot Richard Whiting, um, initially actually kind of thought it was in his own best interest to, to support the king into taking control of the church. And he's actually a signatory on the kind of act of... Um, kind of supremacy of, of, of the king taking over the church. He yeah. supported the king. As you said, he was kind of going from one bus to the other, but he was already supporting Yeah, so, so rather than owing so loyalty to the Pope in yeah. Rome and sending money and, and allegiance away to the Pope, all he's doing is swapping one boss for another, as yeah. you said. So he's giving instead money to the crown of the king. He didn't necessarily immediately believe anything has to no, change. No. Unfortunately, um, this was part <laughs> of a greater scheme, you know, to slowly begin closing the monasteries. Yeah. Um, now, Glastonbury Abbey is by no means the first monastery to be closed in the country, no. but what happens is, um, in 1539, its time comes, um, commissioners are sent from London, three commissioners, lawyers are sent from London to the Abbey um, to kind of assess the lay of the land and try and find out if there's any wrongdoing by the Abbey. They're kind of looking for excuses that they can use to begin closing the church or any legal reasons they could be able to do it. And unfortunately, they don't really find anything. It's recorded that they're actually pretty frustrated. They don't find much wrong with what the Abbey's doing. <laughs> so what happens is um, time ticks on a bit and, and time gets a bit more precious to them. So then they get a, a warrant to arrest the abbot um, while he's residing at Sharpen, which is one of his houses nearby. And they come to Sharpen and arrest him under the charge of theft. And it's said that they find... Um, some amount of valuables that were meant to belong to the abbey residing in, or, or hidden in his house at Sharpen. And because the king has now taken control of the church, everything that belongs to the church belongs, belongs to the, the king. king. So the idea <laughs> is, is that technically by having these valuables in his house, the abbot has committed theft against the monarch, which yeah. is a treasonable offence. So the abbot's placed on trial, and basically after the end of that trial is found guilty of treason. Um, he's given kind of a chance to, to kind of recant and um, admit his guilt, in which place he might be spared, but he refuses to admit guilt. You've got to admire that, though. So, so he stuck to his kind of um, his guns and his convictions and kind of um, stood by the monastery. Um, but unfortunately, as I said, he was branded a traitor and he was um, sentenced to be executed. Uh, what happened in the end is he was taken up to the top of Glastonbury Tor, overlooking the town and the local area. And along with his treasurer and chief clerk, he was hung, drawn and quartered, the then English traitor's death. Yeah. So his head um, would have been displayed on a pike and his quarters were separated and sent to different important sites around the county to be displayed as a warning, warning. to others. Yeah. So um, a particularly messy end. The monks of the monastery were actually pensioned off. So they weren't necessarily treated particularly badly. They were given a living. Some monks did change profession and, and convert to becoming priests in the Protestant system. Others were pensioned off. Some were from noble families, monks here, and went back to other livings and other lives. Interesting. So, I was saying, well, I thought I thought the monks were going to be punished for it only because when yeah. you think the head gets punished, you think all, yeah. all the followers are going to no, be punished. No, kind of think, think of them more of kind of disbanded yeah. as brotherhood. They were kind of sent they away. away. <laughs> um, the, the site itself was then stripped of valuables by the king's men. Then they could sell or melt down. Was taken away. The windows and roof of the building were removed because they had lead in them, were valuable, oh, you know, could taken off. Yeah, and then, to be honest, work. largely, the destruction kind of stopped there and they left a lot of the building as an empty shell. And we probably would have had a lot more left today if that was the only act of destruction. Of course. But yeah, unfortunately, <laughs> after, after the dissolution, a lot of the land of the Abbey 
was bought at a kind of knockdown rate by the Duke of Somerset, Edward Seymour, who later became Henry's brother-in-law. Yes. And he installed kind of a warden of the site, and this began a several hundred year long period of the site being used as a local reclamation yard. So basically, local people would come here to take stone to use in local building projects, basically medieval and later recycling. <laughs> and really, it's only been, you know, kind of for the past 100, 100 150 years or so that that's stopped happening. So, um, and that's why we're left with that's the Abbey in a ruined state. It's, it's been... Like Victorian times is when it stopped. It just yeah, pretty much, yeah. So we've had this, this big event at the dissolution where the church was stripped of valuables, windows and roof were yeah. removed. And then it's kind of the next couple of hundred years of successive quarrying and recycling of material. Sold off, to sold off, to off that, that's left the site in such a ruined state mm, as we right. see it today. Thank God they didn't get rid of um, the scissor arch. I suppose with the scissor arches, it's kind yeah. of like that is well, Especially with the bigger arches, you can see they've left the big parts of the pier there that would have been a big scissor arch actually at Wells Cathedral. Yeah, yeah, so we can still see how that at least would have risen up. And um, at least we've got some beautiful bits like the kitchen left. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I, that's. that's especially in the, in the former that is it because I imagine people are going to think it, it's bits are missing but it, yeah. it is actually very much in its, in its original it's st- still pretty much still there yeah yeah I suppose uh, the other thing we've got to mention as well is um, the le- I'm going to say this in, in these terms the legend of King Arthur yeah absolutely yeah. <laughs> as historians we've got to be careful when we say that really. yeah um, so uh, there's this whole yeah. idea of black blasphemy is uh, the resting place of King yeah, Arthur. Now, I, I, yeah. I've mentioned in my, one of, um, when I was on holiday, I went to the birthplace of King Arthur <laughs> <laughs> in Tintagel. So you kind of move from one side of the country to the other. Yeah. But Glastonbury's always had this, this myth and, and legend so, that, yeah. that this is where King Arthur now lies. Yeah. And I know in, um, is, it the cl- is it the cluster of the... Um, Just in the, in the choir. Choir, sorry, the choir. Of, okay. Yeah. <laughs> it's about the sea. I've got quite a yeah. um, <laughs> That... They think that that's where his tomb was, or we know is yeah. a tomb of there some sort. There was a tomb there, yeah. And they think that might be where King Arthur yeah, was. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in a nutshell, kind of the story of King Arthur Glastonbury goes back to the year 1191. But this is the year the monks meant to have discovered the grave of Arthur in the old graveyard, which is currently to the south of the Lady Chapel. Yes. And the story goes, they're kind of in the middle of a rebuilding project, just about to begin the building of their great new church after a little bit of financial downturn at the monastery, and also after there's been a great fire that burnt down much of the abbey. So in this mm. beginning of this kind of rebuild period, and one of the monks is meant to have done a bit of research about past history at the abbey and thinks he's found some useful information, um, that there's a great treasure buried between two um, pyramids within the graveyard. And these are basically either Romano-British or early Anglo-Saxon grave markers. Yeah. So the monks kind of listen to their fellow and go out to the graveyard um, and see if there's anything to this claim. They dig a great hole and they find um, basically a tomb and they open the tomb and inside they find the burials of two people. So one man with particularly large bones and the remains of what they presume is a lady with some of her long golden hair just about preserved. With the bodies as a cross that kind of proudly declares on it in Latin, here lies King Arthur upon the island of Avalon. So the monks are amazed. They think they found the legendary burials of King Arthur and next him, Queen Guinevere, with that lovely golden hair. They lift these bodies, have them placed in a chapel for storage and kind of spread the word, we found King Arthur. And news travels like wildfire around of course, the yeah. England. This is right <laughs> at the height of the kind of chivalric tradition. So chivalry and courtly virtue and knights questing a 
are kind of very much in, in favour at court. Um, a lot of the kind of French literature about this kind of chivalric era was being written, a lot of French literature about King Arthur and his legends are being written. Yes. So coincidentally, Glastonbury, right at this time, finds King Arthur buried here. Yeah. So, of course, we believe this brings some level of donation coming yeah, into the end to help them rebuild or financial backing. Come on, come in, come in. <laughs> yeah, how much that benefited, we really don't know. But what we do know is that once the church is finished in 1278, there's a grand procession led by King Edward I himself and his wife, Queen Eleanor, and they lead this procession that reburies those bones they found inside a great big black marble shrine inside the choir. And that becomes the focal point for kind of almost the pilgrimage cult of Arthur in the Middle Ages. This is what period. people have come to see. Yeah, many it? people do come, amongst other relics, to come and see the tomb of Arthur at Glastonbury. It becomes one of Glastonbury's kind of claims to fame that we have the, the tomb now, of Arthur yeah. here. And that remains true today, of course. People yeah. come from all over the world to see where King Arthur is buried. There's so many choices, you probably go, where is it? Where is it? Yeah, and, and obviously at the moment... <laughs> well, they probably think there's going to be a sword and a stone somewhere. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and unfortunately, at the moment, yeah, all we've got is the spots where we believe this tomb was, and there's nothing left. We do know there was a tomb here in the Middle Ages that was claimed to be the tomb of Arthur, but what's happened to that tomb post-dissolution, we really have no idea. No, um, but you were, you were saying, because there is a graveyard site on Gatsby Abbey, and yeah. there are a lot of like other cathedrals and yeah. other um, uh, abbeys, etc., a lot of graves do get moved to certain points. Yeah, absolutely. So like, moved around, like, yeah. like in the nave, for example, yeah. they end up getting moved into the more important part of the yeah, church. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Mulchenave, for example, right at the very, on the, in the very end of the nave had a very, very, very small um, coffin, as yeah. I said. They said whoever was like laid here was obviously extremely important because it's in one of the most important parts yeah. of, the, of the, the abbey. Yeah. So, you know, it, it doesn't surprise me that whoever was buried in that tomb must have been of significant importance to where the actual tomb is located. Absolutely, though. yeah. So, you know, regardless if it was <laughs> King Arthur and Queen, or Queen Guinevere, we don't know, but uh, it's nice to think there is that yeah. opportunity that they could be. There may be a grain of truth somewhere there. there, yeah. Yeah, if we yeah. do something, see one suit, let's see someone walking around with a, a sword, that'll be wise in our history. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Welcome back to Todd's Time Travel here on Summer Valley FM. We're still with Todd and Luke at Glastonbury Abbey. We're just going to conclude the interview here with, um, for those who want to actually visit Glastonbury Abbey, the site is open uh, 364 days a year. Uh, you can also uh, purchase a season pass, which will let you into the Abbey as many times as you like. Right? Is that right? Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> and I suppose that the other benefit you have is that you are very friendly. As we well. are, but we're dog friendly, so the dogs <laughs> on site can go wherever you can go. Yes. So, yeah. so um, I think we've done a nice general overview of um, a brief overview of what, yeah. what starts near, near to the finish yeah. as it is now. Um, I know it's a trust that now runs Glastonbury yep. Abbey, is that yeah. right? Yeah, the Abbey Trust. Yeah, yeah. Luke, I, I'm hoping um, I can come back to Glastonbury Abbey for some time and You'd be you very more. welcome. Yeah, because I, I think yeah. there's so much more we got to talk about. I, mean, oh, yeah. I think there's, Kiara there's alone is... endless <laughs> amounts of stuff here, yeah. I think Kiara alone is just one fragment yeah. of, of something we can, we we can go into. We just dipped our toes in the water. We kind of like hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> but no, it was, it was a br uh, brilliant to come in and to, to start off what I hope to be a many good interviews here with you. Hopefully, Luke. yeah. Yeah, thank you very much for your time, Luke. Thank you, Todd.